0: this will definitely help like um and not just because this regime has tentacles not just in Georgia, well in georgia in places like that in moldova too by the way and even in ukraine today um a lot of more tentacles than elsewhere but they have tentacles everywhere oh absolutely absolutely um let's go to let's go to nula
1: nula 7. hey guys mike check loud and here Okay, I wanted to jump into the North Macedonia-Bulgaria discussion. Uh, the latest news, actually, from this morning is that the the Parliament actually uh, approved the the French uh, conditions, or not the conditions, but the, the French offer. Uh, so, as of this morning, uh, the the condition is is no longer Bulgaria is no longer. Uh, Holding a veto, uh, and that's obviously the the crisis. There, it's, it's just beginning since they uh, toppled the government yesterday, and it it's still unclear because it's gotta go rat. It's gotta go be ratified by the parliament, which they did uh, this morning. And then, uh, last I heard, was that actually North Macedonia wasn't agreeing with this because they they felt that uh, the, the conditions are too harsh for them, and that the bilateral um, Bulgaria North Macedonia negotiations shouldn't be part of uh, of the procedure for the European Union. But anyways, that's that's what I wanted to add to the discussion because things are changing pretty fast in Bulgaria right now. Uh, it looks like there will be uh, a vote in September at uh, the earliest, but for now the, the parliament still works and they can still um, try to uh, move forward on, on some of the of some of of these uh, initiatives currently. I hope that's uh, something that interests you.
0: Yes, it is very much. Thank you, Nula Nula Sedan. Um, Quick question for you. So could you outline the situation in Bulgaria a little bit more? Um, what's likely to happen? Obviously, the government faced a vote of no confidence. The prime minister was, mm-hmm. you know, relatively pro-European, pro-Ukraine as they come. Right? Uh, the the populace is a little bit more split. The the parliament is yeah, a little bit more so, split when it comes to Ukraine.
1: Uh, yeah. So this split in the society is reflected in the parliament. Obviously, that's how democracies work, I guess. But uh, uh, there were three elections last year so they they couldn't form a government uh, for many many months and then uh, the current the current government was a coalition of uh, a very ideologically misaligned parties uh, four of them so it was just a matter of time nobody expected uh, the government to be stable it was just a matter of time uh, that uh, they're gonna start fighting with each other and that's what happened basically uh, in terms of what's gonna happen nobody knows uh, the the opposition so-called uh, or the the people that voted out the government were kind of pro russian aligned they they were against the um, cutting of the gas prom contract and they are against uh, Giving weapons to Ukraine, although not all of them, so it's it's very much up in the air uh, what uh, what I guess the the result of the vote will be, uh, and it depends also on, of course, the the months that lead to the election. What's going to happen and how everyone will position themselves. But uh, needless to say, it's uh, it's not a good thing to be in a parliamentary crisis in the middle of the whole uh, war and the whole uh, problems that that are uh, economical problems and, and all of that so the forces of uh, destabilization unfortunately prevailed in Bulgaria so I hope for the best but currently it's looking very uh, very much Unclear what's going to be next for Bulgaria.
0: Excellent pointer. Um, So I guess we'll see in the fourth election within 18 months or so, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I I really don't want to go to the, I guess, Italian model of uh, governing where you have unstable coalitions and frequent elections. But so far, it seems like we're heading this way. No offense to our Italian friends, obviously. Uh, It's just how it is, I guess, in the South. And with that, I'll jump down. Thank you, guys. Thank
0: you, pointer. And we have uh, Alexey up. Um, Alexey, um, would you want to introduce yourself to the group, maybe? I don't think you've uh, spoken here before, uh, but I think I've read you before, so...
2: Yeah, hello there. Um, um, I was uh, invited by Tatiana Pitkaluk. She's uh, one of your active listeners and uh, participants in this in this chat. I, I assume. Uh, yeah, my name is Alexei Bobrovnikov. I'm a a journalist. Uh, um, basically, I was uh, following Putin's uh, maneuvering uh, in a in a place I call the gray zone. Which were those uh, enclosures that were under the control and still are under the control of uh, um, FSB and uh, GRU and uh, the, the Russian army proxies in Donbas and uh, particularly in uh, Lugansk region. And um, just finished a nonfiction book that is uh, being translated into German right now. Since I spent fellow of the local PEN Center. Um, then I moved uh, to Bilysee, one of my basically favorite locations to to work. I in Georgia, not the the you know the American Georgia, but uh, Georgia in the uh, Southern Caucasus. And um, when the whole uh, the whole uh, so called uh, special operation, <laughs> the actual full scale war. Uh, that was started by the, the Moscow Midget. I moved back to Ukraine to, to join the International Legion for a little while. Uh, and we kind of fought a little bit in Kiev, and I'm back to my normal media work uh, since May, basically. So that's the, the long story short. I'm, I'm now in Ukraine, not in the combat zone, um, not even closed some few hundred miles from there but still in Ukraine and probably will be back in the capital in a couple of weeks and uh, so basically you know that's the story open to so you know uh speaking of uh, russian tactics i was actually trying to discover the um, the smuggling route and uh, then uh, it, i mean this is the thing that was a pretty typical situation for the the first years of war when the russians were exploiting the occupied territories uh in order to create the the shadow economy that would help to support their proxies and their own kgb guys back there we're talking about drugs potentially heroin but um what i was able to discover was the the precursors to to produce the dirtiest drug in the world they they call it the heroin for the poor it's called the crocodile in the local parlance uh, also it's about gold and silver um precious metal smuggling, a potentially some some movements of weaponry that was um uh also organized by those uh, people um under the, the Russian flag in Lugansk. And um this type of goods. Human trafficking also, but yeah, that's a different long story. And so this is what I've been doing trying to monitor and uh, and write about those things my sources for information were violently murdered back in 2015. a year after i had to flee ukraine for a few years and basically that's how i had, have ended up in germany for a little while but now i'm back so that's what i've been doing and uh yeah here i am for a little while up i will probably be here for like half an hour maybe maybe 45 minutes but i'm i'm, I'm happy to uh to listen to your conversations here. I've been like following it for the last two weeks since Tatiana introduced me to this chat and there were a couple of uh, indeed uh really interesting speakers and uh, yeah a nice uh, place you you guys have established and uh um yeah glad to glad to be here with you. Thank
0: you very much Alexi. Uh very glad to have you here with us. Uh I see Ben already has a question for you and then Mache and axe and I will probably have many more still. Ben. Uh, Hello, Alexei. Thanks a lot uh, for being here. A very quick question. You mentioned uh, those those traffics uh, that the Russian uh, special services are running. Are they directed towards Russia? So basically they're taking drugs in Russia and they make money out of uh, uh, selling it in Russia. Or is it directed towards, say, Europe and they make money by selling the drugs to Europe?
2: Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. So what we know is that uh, starting from late 2014, it was uh, pretty much about uh, counterfeit cigarettes that were floating uh, the European market through the porous uh, demarcation line where the corrupt uh, um, Russian proxies and the corrupt Ukrainian military and the special uh, agencies were actually uh, letting the this flow of the goods uh, happened, and he uh, was coming through the sporous uh, so-called border the demarcation line and the checkpoints through Ukraine uh, with uh, with uh, with the bases they had in mukachevo uh, Western Ukraine later on with the help of the border guards and the local police he was going to Hungary and I uh, Romania and Poland a pretty typical situation Ukraine has been a smugglers capital for this type of goods for quite a while it was traditionally um, a part of the local uh, sbu and uh, police business uh from what i know from where what i've heard from a couple of uh more or less adequate uh, local uh, officers it was that uh, that was the scam that was the route that was uh inspired by the FSB and this was what they were doing basically blocking the this type of counterfeit cigarettes from Russia but then letting it uh, flow to to Europe to Eastern Europe in particular where Hungary was always a one of the main um, countries to uh, be actually to, to be dealing with this type of uh, operations. That's what we're talking about, Sigrass, which was the uh, name of the game there for quite a while. Uh, when it comes to, <clears throat> that was an alleged heroin traffic uh, through Russia to so-called LPR. Um, and uh, later through the city, through the Sea of Azov to Crimea, uh, maybe disappearing somewhere in Bulgaria. But this is an alleged route. I. I cannot confirm that. I've heard about it from the local law enforcement, but I couldn't lay my hand on, you know, this type of goods. Um, it was also leaked uh, to the former or the current. I'm not sure the, the the dude who was running the Echo of Moscow. This more or less uh, transparent i uh, Russian outlet, which is supposed to be a an oppositional outlet, but uh, I I would not trust uh, Moscow sources at all. So um, this was this when it comes to heroin and this type of, um, of drug. When it comes to local precursors for crocodile, um, I can confirm because I've, I've seen this this cargo myself uh, back in 2016. Uh, it was circulating between the occupied territories, uh, being produced either or in Kharkiv, uh, which is. Uh, controlled by ukraine uh and Gorlivka, which was uh, and still is a place of one of the biggest uh, chemical productions in, in ukraine which is a uh, plant that was plant that was uh, controlled by Dmitry firtash the 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 oligarch who has uh, pretty strong ties with russia uh but i doubt very much the firtash has something to do with the with this protocol uh that took 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 over the plant uh, and they were using it for their own uh, um, kind of obscure obscure businesses uh, so this is when it comes to uh, <clears throat> drag drug trafficking and uh, counterfeit fake cigarettes trafficking and um, When it comes to gold and silver scrap metal, it was uh, basically the business of Ukrainian SBU, Ukrainian uh, spy agency, as Western press puts that. But basically they sold a bureaucratic machine that we inherited from from KGB. And they were dealing with with this type of activities uh, on the demarcation line with uh, LPR, the so-called Luhansk People Republic.
0: So I'll put it that way. Thanks a lot. That was extremely comprehensive.
2: That was a pretty good. That was a pretty good piece written by a friend of mine and a colleague of mine based in in London. Uh, if you may inquire a little bit more about that, because this was not really, uh, not much of it was in the Western press. I did quite a few reports on that in i in Ukrainian press and also in Novaya Gazeta, uh, the one uh with the editor in chief is muratov um and also in that that was a little um fact checking uh, outlet based in london i don't think it functions by by now it was called interpreter mag uh a pretty decent outlet it was and that was a piece that is called uh, G- golden blood uh in donbas something like that um uh, so if you google like you know golden and, and and blood uh, Donbass interpreter MAG, uh, MAG. I'm, I'm pretty positive you're going to find a, a, a pretty decent report on this issue. Thanks, Alexei.
0: And I want, want to highlight right, how much effort had to have been gone over the past five, six years uh, within Ukraine with very extensive assistance from the outside to route out such uh, you know, insidious elements within the SBU who would be doing such things um, and uh, you know restructure. Uh, restructured agency throughout um um you're a polish journalist colleague who was working on anthracite going the other way um do do you want to maybe contrast the two a little bit um i forget his name macie macie yeah i'm here sorry i was
3: uh i was kind of listening no so michael potoski was the name and uh yeah the anthracite was going first to russia stolen from the mines that were operated on the DPR and uh, LNR uh, territories and uh, and then it was uh, shipped as Russian uh, coal basically to Europe and there were no questions asked uh, many dealers small dealers of uh, Europe in, in Europe of coal were involved in that and uh, yeah that was that but uh, but it's just, it's just so interesting because you know uh, we often look at even what happened in 2014 uh, through the lens of war and of course it's, it's the probably most more important lens but all those you know shady business deals that were uh, there is, is just so interesting so i i would have uh, a question for alexei what happens right now uh in your estimate in uh, because we know that from donetsk and lugans many people that were aligned with russia they actually left before the start of the war uh, how are the territories functioning and uh, and also in terms of illicit uh activities that were ongoing there how the war the, the full-scale war or the reinvasion from the 24th affected what happens there
2: yeah thank you for that one um I do not have a direct access to my sources uh, back in the occupied territories. Um, some of them are probably dead by now. Some of them have fled, as you mentioned. That's true. Uh, from my colleagues in Odessa, which is uh, one of the smuggler's uh, havens in Ukraine, always was, since uh, the times of uh, certain Viktor Boot and his uh, associates and this type of uh, activities that were... Pretty uh, closely connected to the death support uh, at a time. Uh, so, from my sources there, from my fellow colleagues who did follow this type of activities when I was away uh, from Ukraine for a few years, uh, the the smuggling activity at that scale has uh, completely stopped uh, on February twenty fourth since the beginning of the full scale invasion. So, you know, when we're talking about Donbass now, we're talking about bloodbath for for both parties, uh, for Russians, luckily, more than for anyone else, and we also know about the losses on the uh, DPR, so-called DPR side, which are uh, drastic, and um, Ukrainian military is doing a formidable job back there right now, and it's not about, in my understanding, it's it's not about smuggling right now uh, and um basically putin putin 's people have killed the the gray zone uh, they 've created uh, a while ago uh by basically starting this you know the full scale war so this is what I know, and this is what I understand from the current situation, although for the last uh, for the previous seven years, starting from I would say November 2014, were when first murders were um, taking place in, in, in Ukrainian-controlled Donbass and in the Russian-occupied lands also, there were witnesses killed, and uh, they, the participants in this uh, smuggler routes, well, you know, the new uh, representative of the local uh quote-unquote low enforcement or quasi-low enforcement on the russian control side were taking over those routes. So that was a very interesting gangster's war that I've been following. Basically, this was the point when I got in trouble covering it, since uh, nobody wanted that to be covered uh, thoroughly uh, on uh, neither Russian nor Ukrainian side. So, for seven years, it was the name of the game there. right now, in my understanding, the full scale war has uh, has blocked any any potential activity of that sort. However, I in case of uh, some shaky peace deal or some other form of uh, temporary, I would say stalemate because none of us here in Ukraine would trust Putin uh, whatever giving any guarantees of a stable peace back in donbass because we've already seen him a and his plan to take over the whole country so but in case of that sh- shaky peace i would i would uh, probably be um a little bit skeptical over the the chances of ukraine to take over this type of activities uh not take over but to fight this type of activities and rather take over this type of uh, shadow dealings um but again, this is a pure speculation and this is a if, 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 uh, kind of, you know, talk, which I would actually skip at this stage. So at this stage, I don't have any, any information on anything else but the full-scale war back there. Right. And
3: when you were talking about the gray zone, uh, what do you mean by that? Just, uh, lack of any rule of law or you mean about a specific geographical region between ukraine and so-called uh you know uh republics uh that that would be my question
2: yeah the first stage (coughs) we were calling the gray zone was the name for the strap of land in between the the Russian-occupied lands and the and the and the, and, uh, the rest of the Ukraine, where well, we're talking about those little uh, so-called demilitarized zones, where the Ukrainian neither the Russian artillery was able to to be based according to the Minsk agreements, whatsoever. So the strap of land, uh, that's what we call the gray zone. Uh, I would say, militarily speaking. But I would uh, apply this term for the whole territory where this type of shadow activity is taking place. And then we're talking about Ukraine, which was a part of this uh, contraband business. And uh, we're talking about Georgia as well. Georgia and the Southern Caucasus were this type of gray zone activities. Uh, of a very different scale, of a very different nature, still taking place. Last fall, I was uh, I traveling al- along the the Abhazian demarcation line, the place also occupied by the Russians, and the Southern Ossetian uh, demarcation line with a group of my associates who later became my brothers in arms and uh in in Ukrainian war, with whom we, we fought together in Kiev in European. and those Georgian guys were uh, they formed some called a, some sort of a quasi military force to monitor the the so called gray zone or sometimes the zone of fear we called it, where it was not that much about contraband, but it was pretty much about Russia's uh, creeping i annexation of Georgia, while the local law enforcement and police and the border guards were not, I I would say, brave enough, vigorous enough, or basically, I wouldn't say professional, but it was about the, 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 uh, the governmental attitude towards the zones. So the, there were no border guards or police, but the Russians were able to slowly annex the territories. I... Field by field, a little forest by little forest, a street by street in the local uh, villages, with no resistance from the Georgians. And the FSB guys were kidnapping people and forcing them to pay the official uh, sort of uh, fine for uh, breaking the territorial integrity of, uh, you know, <clears throat> southern Ossetia or Abkhazia, which is, of course. An absolute nonsense because we're talking about Georgian lands, but this was when the Russians were scaring off the local population from their natural habitat and basically uh, freeing this place for their own, uh, I would say, Lebensraum in German, you know, the living space where they could establish their regime. So it was still a name of the game in Georgia. I faced it myself. I was witnessing it last uh, fall. Uh, Yet, when we're talking about Ukraine, um, we are, (coughs) we are, um, sorry, uh, I I forgot your question about Ukraine. I I, I traveled somewhere in Georgia in my mind, and uh, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. So could, could you? No,
3: no, you actually answered the question perfectly. I was asking just about the definition, what you mean about the gray zone.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, so, yeah. Because I, I started focusing on Georgia, and then I kind of lost the thread of what we were talking about in Ukraine. So the definition of the gray zone, I would say, uh, it's a, a place where there are no uh, border guards, no um, no border control, uh, no police control. Of course, there is no rule of law, and there is no uh, pre-trial justice. It is generally speaking, but uh, speaking of contraband, it's the absence of the um, of the uh, officers and the institutions that would uh, basically be in control of the flow of goods. Uh, so when you look at the map of Ukraine, you would realize that the whole uh, part of Ukrainian Donbas until the twenty fourth uh, february twenty fourth this year, uh, was the, the the official border, as we um, as we understand the word border, was completely absent in this area. So there was no uh, official um, control over the border with Russia. Apparently, because Russians were they took over the so-called LPR and DPR, and then the demarcation line in Donbas uh, was controlled by the local. Um, Quasi law enforcement of LDPR and Ukrainian authorities. Yet there was no sort of no taxation, no border control, and it was all up to the local commander in the fields, commanders in the fields, and the special security forces and and special special forces. So it was open to all sort of uh, all sort of. Uh, uh corruption i would say uh cuz this this border was transparent and it was uh uh it was absolutely open to the uh shadow of the market deals of the gray zone so can i Dominic? If, if that's fine
3: can i can i ask Alexei just just one Yeah more yeah
0: match it match it keep keep going keep going
3: so sorry I, I don't know how to ask this question exactly but the thing is what interests me most i think we don't know much and we have a person that that been there in those gray zones in uh, russian occupied areas before twenty fourth, right uh what were the people that were engaged uh in both the illicit activities the illegal activities and uh, and were part of russian backed local administrations right because I've read that at, at the start, when uh, you know Maidan was happening, and uh, uh, you know at the start of uh, when the Cre- Crimea annexation was happening, there were some leaders that were local, more or less, from from political fringes. But they were then they were kind of supplanted by some more serious people that were more direct backed uh, by Moscow. So, so if you can just put a color on the. Who's who's the big player? There are there locals, are there people that came from Russia because they saw opportunity? If you can speak to that, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, so we got we got a court hearing, which is unfortunately not not open to public. Uh, that's going to happen in Lviv, Ukraine. Now, it's about the uh, certain uh, Viktor Medvedchuk. Of course, most of you have heard of this uh, of this uh, chap. I you know being in a in uh, this type of godfather and godson and goddaughter relationship with, uh, with Putin. Uh, so this guy who was always in the shadow uh, of Ukrainian politics was actually one of the negotiators between the Putin regime and the then president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, uh, and helping him to organize one of the um, routes of transporting coal into Ukraine. And we already know from one of the comments here, and I uh, mean, I know about it from, of course, from the open sources way before that, about this stolen uh, coal from Ukraine that was going to, to Kuzbas region and then being exported into Europe. Uh, but then we also had the coal trains uh, circulating between the, the mainland Ukraine and the occupied enclaves in Donbass. And it was organized uh, under the supervision of uh, people close to Medvedchuk and Poroshenko. But the interesting part, the the part that interested me uh, in this uh, equation was the goods that were traveling um, aside from the coal, but in the same, like basically in the same uh, railway cars that we used to transport coal from lpr to to the mainland ukraine and then we're talking about all type of goods including uh, counterfeit cigarettes and uh basically some some basic goods like i don't know coca-cola or alcohol or uh, you know anything that is a part of a normal uh, circulation of goods in in any normal country but in this case uh since the porous demarcation line was in hands of the law enforcement on both sides it became a monopoly of the sbu and the police force and the the army in particular and there were a couple of serious clashes between the, the warlords and both sides to take over these routes and this is exactly where i was digging into uh, so for instance i mean i call you a few names for instance If you follow Ukrainian uh, um, war and the the sort of politics uh, behind this war or in between those wars, those stages of war, you probably know the name of a certain Pasichnik, the head of the... uh, quasi state of LPR the Lugansk people Republic as, as Moscow puts that and this guy was a former uh, official within the usB and he has reestablished a connection with mainland Ukraine to organize smuggling routes uh, through the so-called uh, demarcation line uh, and actually he was for in in if of, of all the stories that I uh, that I know about him I would uh, rely on the story that I Myself has fact checked a while ago. It was about uh, gold and silver uh, scrap metals and the gold and silver uh, being uh, transported in between those territories. And he and the other uh, uh, former SBU uh, official on the other side, on the Ukrainian side, were the organari- organizers of this of this route. So it's just uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg of this whole uh, corruption and the the smugglers' business. But I think it's pretty uh, picturesque.
0: Alexei, um, I have a very silly question for you. What was the economic motivation to smuggle stuff out of the LPR, so it's quote-unquote LPR, Russian-occupied territory, Russian FSB-controlled territory of Ukraine, into mainland Ukraine, as opposed to just sending it into Russia because that's probably a bit easier, and then exporting it wherever from there, uh, seeing the uh, uh, sanctions regime that Russia was under weren't exactly strict or very strongly enforced. And if they could get, you know, anthracite coal from uh, the occupied territories into Russia and then into Europe, surely the much smaller quantities of things like gold could have been done uh, that way relatively easily, no? Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand economic the economic motivations
2: of it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That, that's just another market. So uh, they could sell it, and they've organized the route where they got the buyers on the other side. I uh, And uh, that was uh, that was uh, a pure, uh, dirty kind of, you know, but still a market economy. But it was functioning under the supervision of the security forces since they got, all of a sudden, got in control of this uh demarcation line without any any official procedures and so they created the procedures of their own and uh i was uh you know the question about who benefited from that and why russians would actually you know deal with this crap when they 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 had a goal to you know to conquer ukraine to take over the land and why mess up with this whole uh you know smuggling um business uh was it was a question that i've been asking myself for years and years because it's it's you know it's not about mexican cartels it's not about those zillions of of dollars it's not about that type of uh you know uh juicy fruity kind of you know good that you could sell easily everywhere and uh, uh but i came to the conclusion that it was the way the moscow was making um uh their own uh, military activities in, in, in Donbass and making their own life uh, and the life of their proxies in Donbass easier and making the war cheaper. So they were helping their own proxies to kind of um, raise their living standards, if you will, <laughs> you know, to get something more than the, the, the dotations from the um, federal Russian uh, budget. Uh, and they were helping they also them under, to establish sorry, the, the business of their own.
4: Yeah, yeah Alexei, They also undermine the rule of law, which is a precondition. It's called softening up. And uh,
2: they have to soften up the territory, uh, infiltrate the uh, area, the culture, find as many people as they can who can collaborate so that they can more easily rule the space which they need in order to build up for the invasion. Yeah, I agree with you here completely. Just that apart from that, yeah, thank you for this comment. And yeah, it goes without saying that this is to destabilize and to corrupt a, a you know a place which is um, already kind of corrupt in its own way. But then to find their collaborators within the law enforcement—that that's the basic uh, rule. And you're absolutely right, I think. But apart from that, I was I was seeking for some like you know you got to go where the money go, right? So. I still wanted to find the, the economic motivation behind it. And this this was the conclusion I came to.
0: Thank you, Alexi. Um So let's go on to... Oh, yeah. Maciej, go
3: ahead. Yeah, just, just I wanted to add to... And Axel is right and Alex is just great points. I, I think it's just them setting up a rent distribution system because this is a system that works on rent distribution, right? To make the people that basically work for you you allow them to, to to make some money on the site, and this is the additional incentive for them to be basically interested in keeping the uh, arrangement uh, in place, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much. So, and also coming back to my beloved Georgia, um, it, it was the 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 uh, those uh, kind of activities when they were kidnapping people in Georgian activists. Uh, call it a uh, you know a kidnapping the uh, occupational forces call it arrests and they were uh, they were actually from what I know from my sources in Georgia they were using the money uh, they got from those um, citizens of georgia that were kidnapped in the because there were also there were also a few murders there a few uh, cases where the people were tortured kidnapped and killed but this one it, it came to uh, georgian soldiers or officers who tried to visit their um, their houses on the occupied territories undercover or the um the places where the their families dwell uh, in the proximity of this uh, so-called border, the demarcation line, but generally it was about a few thousand people that were kidnapped according to Georgians, to uh, put a foot on them. And those money were sent were were basically given to the local Russian proxies and the local FSB officers to give them some sort of um, you know bounty on the heads of those uh, you know uh, kidnapped people. To, to give them the additional, um, additional funding, additional cash to make their life more juicy, I would
0: say. Thank you very much, Alexei. Um Sorry, Reva, I have a question from the audience that kind of ties into this. Um, and I'm sure that you'll be very interested to hear the answer as well, River. So, Alexi, um, a, a listener says that they'd be really interested to know about the human trafficking, um, the forcible deportations during the past eight years, um, so before February 24th. How much they were composed of, you know, clear non-combatant civilians, children, women. And also today, what do you think the prospects are? And how would you go about finding all of the people that have been deported from the occupied territories deep into Russia, dispersed across Russia, be it in, you know, quote unquote filtration camps, which we all know really concentration camps, or just dropped off? in the middle of nowhere in Siberia, Sakhalin, wherever
2: else. Yeah, we're now facing this huge issue with, uh, with the defenders of the Azov, Stalin, Mariupol, those absolutely heroic combatants. There were just, just some of them were given back to Ukraine, the paramedic uh, with the call sign Tyra, who finally came back to Ukraine after a few weeks uh, in, uh, in the Russian um, camp. Uh, but we're still talking about hundreds and hundreds of uh, Ukrainian soldiers and maybe thousands of civilians and um i only know from open sources that some of them uh uh got a chance to flee from the uh from the concentration for whatever filter camps whatever uh to georgia and some of them were able to bribe russian uh officials there and uh give them some uh uh, some story that they're going to some Pskov, Saratov, or Rostov, or elsewhere to, to, to live there, but basically they flew to a neutral and friendly um, Georgia. Uh, but uh, when we're talking about the the thousand and thousands of people who disappeared somewhere in the Russian wastelands, it's the huge issue that we're facing right now. And I, strictly speaking, I do not have an answer to that question because this is the one of the biggest tragedies of this war they've disappeared into some place that is way darker than a gray zone where the bribes and the corruption uh, can still you know be helpful in a way to 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 buy your way back from imprisonment at least but when we're talking about fsb prison uh this is something else it's a totalitarian state and i i do not think that i have to explain that because you're pretty pretty much aware of what it is so hell yeah they they're lost somewhere there and uh we we got no clue what happened to them at this stage maybe kuleba Mitro, the the foreign minister would have some more to say to comment on that because i'm, I'm, I'm not even close to any group that negotiates Um uh, the terms, how those people, particularly people of uh, Azovstal, would be released. But uh, I I have this very dark and itchy and uh, and terrible feeling about them, to be honest with you, and I got no answer to that question.
0: And thank you, Alexei. And it's not just about the hundreds of brave defenders of Azovstal, right? But also, of course, the hundreds of thousands, uh, more than a million and a half Ukrainians that Russians admit to having, you know, they say evacuated, but we all know that, I mean, that means deported. Um, into into Russia. Um, Very
2: That was a pretty good story on Guardian yeah. newspaper. I think it was a week ago. Uh, they the the uh, the journalists have uh, uh, interviewed a few uh, of those who escaped the fil- fil- filtration camps uh, in uh, in Taganrog and Rostov and Don. Uh, the people who were able to flee to to, to Georgia to Tbilisi. and I uh, so. Yeah, those people who were not under um, some sort of, you know, whatever, you know, uh, uh, criminal criminal records of of Russians or whatever, they were able to flee. Uh, Yeah, but we were talking hundreds. And when it comes to those thousands who disappeared in Russia, yeah, I don't
0: know. Uh, I don't know. Thank you, Alexey. It was it was worth an ask, and you know it's always good to highlight uh, what the Russians are doing to to the many, I don't know, thousands, but hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, of civilians uh, in occupied territories. Right, uh, Raver, please go ahead.
4: Yeah, Alexey, I I share your dark feeling about uh, the people who have been deported, especially the ones who don't pass filtration. Um, But I would like to kind of take it back to the gray zone for a minute. You mentioned uh, former SBU officers several times, MSB officers, and the smuggling networks. Uh, What has Ukraine done to try to reform this, especially going forward now that they're an EU candidate state, uh, in reestablishing institutions that are free from corruption?
2: yeah thank you for this one it's also an easy question for me to answer um well for six years i was a refugee from ukraine for my uh, for my experience in the gray zone when i was trying to highlight the murder of my source whose name was Andrei galushenko and who was the uh, uh, the sbu operative in the fields uh basically he was the sbu operative for the last two weeks of his life he was a volunteer fighter uh, in the first months of that uh, uh, that I first I um, stage of uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Later, he moved to to the so-called mobile mobile groups to um, address the issue of smuggling. Uh, um, since then, for six years, I was trying to provoke an official investigation in, into this death and. Uh, I was not really successful in that, uh, and so I had to, to to stay away from Ukraine for a little while, because I was um, actually warned that I' going to be the next target, and there was uh, there were two of other witnesses in this case that were murdered. Uh, so um, it was it took me, you know, it took Putin the 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 to start the real war in ukraine so that i would feel more you know safer to go back home since the gray zone is not the name of the game at this stage and the people who were involved in this type of activities some of them are dead and some of them are uh, basically uh, still still there but they're busy with something else and not the story of the gray zone no longer So there was just one case when one of the groups that was involved in uh, in the gray zone activities, it was uh, the case of the uh, police battalion called Tornado, that were persecuted. But in my understanding, uh, they were persecuted simply because they didn't follow the the rules of the gray zone suggested by the then uh, leaders of the local police uh, and not because, you know, they were um um the, the the government was willing to get rid of those uh, those scams if that answers your question
4: i was i was asking uh, more about what is ukraine doing now to especially being a eu candidate to reform and root out uh, corruption so that once Russia is kicked out of ukraine ukraine is left with institutions that are worthy of her people
2: Yeah, we expect Zelensky to fire the current
4: uh, head of the
2: SBU, certain Bakanov. Uh, That was a piece on Politico this morning or yesterday evening on um, potential uh, rotation that Ukrainian president Zelensky is planning in the SBU. Uh, We already know about the traitors in the Kherson department of the SBU who basically let Russians into the Ukrainian mainlands from the occupied Crimean Peninsula. And there is an alleged role in that of the local SBU head, which is, uh, I have not, I've never investigated that case, so I would rely on the open sources here, but I'm pretty positive that, you know, that's, that's a solid story. But you can Google it yourself, uh, Bakanov uh, Zelensky uh, Politico, uh, and that was a pretty decent piece on that. So hopefully there is some uh, move towards transparency here. Also, that was the head of the, um, or one of the heads of the Kharkiv branch of the SBU that was quietly fired from his job uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, and in my understanding, from my sources in the, in the Ukrainian intelligence, this guy was one of the organizers of the, of the, uh, smuggling and then um, uh, other forms of trafficking in uh, in Kharkiv region. So I would carefully and uh, a bit sceptically, maybe, but I would you know try to look at this as a sign of some reform.
4: Thank you, Alexi.
0: Thank you, Alexey. Um, let's go to Drafly, and then I think Matvey and I will have a few more questions for you after that, Drafly
5: uh this is a uh this is a great uh discussion It's something I've been following for some time uh as this war goes on there there's a um a lot of Russian influence in organized crime in the United States and it's spilled over into some pretty influential people um I don't know have you uh read it all about the the Russian mob efforts in places like Brighton beach and in uh Palm Beach down in Florida Brighton beach is outside of New York City and palm Beach is down in uh, uh, just north of miami yeah i was doing uh you know this old
2: school reportage meeting witnesses in the fields and not really relying on open sources or you know big data journalism i was doing this you know old school uh you know uh world war Two style uh of of journalism for the last 10 years uh honestly so um uh, I'm in touch with a few people from Billing Cat and Arik Toller of course and I, I try to help them in their own inquiries uh, but more into um you know my part of the world I would say um at some stages. But so I was not really looking into into US uh since last time I was in in the US it was uh, when the Twin Towers were still there and I had my my hot dog for seven bucks <laughs> on the lower well, tower and you know. So it was, well, uh, it well, the was re- uh the quarter reason I century
5: agree- ago. Yeah. The reason I bring it up that I think it has salience with the efforts that are in Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe. Um, Manafort, you know, we've all heard about him and the connections to the Republican um, changing of the Republican platform, basically almost as a coup overnight in 2016. Um, He had close contacts to Firtash. And of course, um, the elder Parnas, you know, he had connections to Fertash as well, and they were involved in, in, the, in, in Ukraine with Giuliani. Um, there was some, some suggestions, at least here in the States, that they were actually influ, influential in trying to get a number of otherwise non-pro-Russian um, administrators to, to go pro-Russian. And, and no one's really, really sure what was behind it whether it was contraband, whether there was promises of money, whether it was just convenience. Um, but there seems to me to be a thread that's tied closely between what has gone on with the Russian um, active aggression, going from passive aggression to active aggression, you know, around 2014 uh, to where we are today. And I think a lot of it, more of it ties through some of the U.S. organized crime than any of us here in the U.S. want to admit. And, um, there's a, there is a blogger at, on, uh, Twitter that's worth following. She, her name is link at Lincoln's Bible. Have you ever read any of her stuff?
0: Hello? Well, did you catch, uh, did you catch your question? Oh yes, uh, thank you, thank you.
2: I yeah, thank you for that. Uh, if you would be so kind to DM me uh, with the link to her page, um, I, I will.
5: And she also has my a podcast. connection
2: is, is not is not superb here, so I would follow her uh, with great I, pleasure. Yeah,
5: yeah. The reason I, I bring it up is that I think right now, especially in the West, that it's really important as we support Ukraine in this effort because it's really supporting all of us that we realize we have a, a more of a dog in this fight than they will ever know. Uh, Lincoln's Bible did a lot of research on the connection between the Russian organized car- crime, FSB, all of the crap that's going on in Eastern Europe, whether it's Transnistria, Ukraine, up toward the intimidating, the, uh, the Baltics, okay, as well as what has gone on with organized crime in the Americas. So I just wanted to thank you for your discussion. And by the way, FurTash seems to have a, a a locus through all of it. Um, so the, the point is, is that I, I think it's more important to us than any of us will ever know. I can't speak for people in Western Europe because I don't follow it as closely there. But my guess is that it's wrapped up in a lot of the problems you're seeing in German politics and German businesses and banking like at Deutsche Bank more than we will ever than more than you guys even realize so this is extremely important as this war goes forward as ukraine wins and as we create a new world order that tries to carve out these this contraband this these organized crime elements because we'll never be free of it until we really get to the root of some of those that's the comment i wanted to make and thank you for your talk
2: yeah. Thank you for your comment. That's that's indeed extremely important. When I was doing, you know, I was doing my little, uh, you know, drop of this work, uh, you know, a drop in the ocean of the of the organized crime and corruption. And I was relying on the sources that I could physically meet in Donbass and, uh, you know, try to verify their uh, testimonies, their uh, their information in the fields directly being there on the spot so this is what i was doing and this is why i basically uh was focusing on this very local type of activities um sometimes they led to pretty interesting play of course you mentioned manafort you mentioned uh trump's associates and uh this is extremely important to understand the scale of these operations uh from what i've uh, I've witnessed myself, for instance. I give you another couple of another couple of uh, of interesting hints here. Uh, potentially, maybe they lead somewhere. Maybe they won't. I don't know, honestly. But what I've been doing, uh, part of my job uh, in the last couple of years, was uh, trying to um, to check the gadgets of the murdered investigators in the fields. Uh, which were basically destroyed by Ukrainian law enforcement after their murders, and they were later brought to me by the families and the closest associates of those people, including Andrei Galushenko, who's, um, who was my direct source and a friend of mine in the fields. And uh, one of the documents that I was able to recover with the help of my Friend from Copenhagen uh, we uh, we got into a draft of one of his investigations and we got the understanding that one of the closest uh, associates to the then Ukrainian president poroshenko, uh, the um, businessman whose name is Kosyuk, who is uh, and still owns uh, quite a big chunk in uh, in Ukrainian agricultural business, was directly sponsoring or directly funding uh, one of the funds that Poroshenko has established to improve his uh, standing in the West, and this was the exact fund from which uh, certain ambassador Kurt Walker has received uh, some royalties uh, in the in in the in the years of 2016, 2017, uh, which was an indirect but a very important sign to me. Uh, that I, the then-Ukrainian government was using the gray zone. And uh, coming back to Kosyuk, uh, from the documents that I got uh, from the investigator who was already dead, this gentleman got a direct access to trading in the gray zone, which, uh, of which most of the Ukrainian businesses were denied. Uh, the to. So it was this type of shadow economy that was fueling the local politics, and of course, it was also influencing somehow um, the image of Poroshenko.